it's a very different thing to think about altering the genetic constitution of the human species. And so the question is, do we have the wisdom to do that? Should we ever do that? Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey everyone, I'm Ken Keithley, and welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. In today's episode, in keeping with our season four theme of challenges to humanity, our own Nathaniel Williams will talk with Dr. Jeff Harden about genetic engineering. And after that, we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, for our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines like news, sports, pop culture, or business, from a Christian perspective. In today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about pop culture, specifically the Barbie movie. Uh, so, Dr. Dobb, uh, this summer, about the middle of the summer, I started receiving texts and messages from friends with a link to a YouTube video of Ryan Gosling singing, I'm Just Kin. It was hilarious. I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, how can I make her see the man behind the tan? Um, I'm not sure why they sent it to me, but there you go. The runaway movie hit this year was Barbie. I mean, the film has made over a billion dollars, and that's not an exaggeration in the global box office. And in fact, that makes it the highest grossing movie of the year and the biggest Warner Brothers movie ever. Now, uh, the movie was also the subject of immense debate, and so we have with us Dr. Anna Dobb, Dr. Dobbs' official title is Director of Special Projects and Partnerships for Global Theological Initiatives. But we just refer to her as one of our pop culture gurus. So, Dr. Dobbs, thank you for being back on the podcast today. Thank you. Yeah. So, in our summer movie preview, you said that you were looking forward to watching Barbie. So, tell us all about it. Did it live up to expectations? Yeah, so I was very intrigued by the Barbie movie. Uh, at first, I thought, man, this is going to be a crazy movie. And then they had a trailer, which is what I talk about in the, that, that preview, where Barbie's dancing with all of her friends, and she says something like, yesterday was the best day ever, and today's the best day ever, and tomorrow's going to be the best day ever, for, forever. And then she kind of just stops in the middle of her dancing, and she says, you guys ever think about dying? And everything just kind of comes to a halt. And that was the moment when I was like, oh, I'm really intrigued. So this is not just your usual movie, game, or toy connection, like the Transformers movies are, you know, G.I. Joe's. This was something different. It was something different, which is what I think actually made it successful. Because uh, I think people went in expecting it's going to be that kind of movie where it's just let's make a live action about something that we grew up in it's going to be based in nostalgia and there were aspects of that but there was definitely a, a social commentary that kind of ran through the movie 
uh, that, that I think was actually very intriguing for a lot of people and, and is the reason there's so much debate and discussion. So did the movie have a thesis or did it just raise a lot of questions? Uh, so I think they would say there's a thesis. Um, I, I think I think you're going to have some people who are going to be pushing a kind of a, fem- a feminist agenda. Um, you'll see that in a lot of the blogs that have been written about it. I also think one of the big predominant themes in the movie is actually brokenness is beautiful, which it was actually the unexpected piece for me. Mm-hmm. Um, because what Barbie does is kind of raise this question, in my opinion, uh, what do we do when we live in what seems like a perfect world and we realize it's not perfect? We realize there's a problem. And for her, there's kind of these like overarching thoughts in the back of her head of, oh my gosh, what, what do we do with this thing called death? And she's in a society where everybody looks at her like she's crazy because she's asking those questions. And then that's what, that's what kind of starts everything going wrong for her. So suddenly she's flat-footed, which is a big deal in Barbie world. Mm-hmm. And her, her shower is cold and her milk is expired and all these different things kind of happen for her to recognize something's not okay, something's not right. And so she goes on this journey, which is very like matrixy. I don't know if you've seen the movie, but there's this moment when they hold up a high heel and a and a Birkenstock sandal, and it's like, which one are you going to choose? This one's going to let you go back to your naivety. Is it and the red pill or the blue pill? Exactly, yeah. same same kind of feel, and and intentionally so, right? Uh, and she actually wants to go back to the world where uh, she doesn't know. She, she's not thinking about these things. And and the bar, the the Barbie she's talking to is like, nah, you, you made the wrong choice. You have to choose this one. You have to go find out what's what's what's. You have to go to the real world. And so she embarks on this journey. In this journey, she goes to a world where uh, she thinks that Barbie's kind of solved the problems for the world, and finds out that actually the world's still kind of broken. Um, and then there's this really poignant scene, which I was reading about earlier, and I, and I think people encouraged the creator to take it out of the movie, but she was very adamant, like, this needs to stay in. Barbie's crying on a bench, and this old lady's sitting next to her, wrinkled, very old, and Barbie looks at her and says, you're beautiful. Hmm. And the woman says, I know. And there's just kind of this moment, and, and people have talked about that moment uh, since, since they saw the movie. I mean, that's, that's one of the moments that's just talked about over and over again. And I think for Barbie, that's kind of the, it's one of the transition moments when she starts to recognize it's okay to not be perfect. And that's, that's the part that I found very fascinating is that in the end, you know, I'm, I'm assuming at this point people have seen the movie, so I'm not giving away any spoilers, but in the end, she chooses to go back to the human world. She doesn't want to stay a Barbie. She doesn't want to be in this picture perfect world anymore, which we now know has its own cracks and problems at, mm-hmm. by the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. But she goes back to the real world and the creator kind of says to her, I can't let you go unless I tell you, unless I like let you see what humanity's about, what the real world's about. And she has this moment where she recognizes the, the, the spectrum of emotions. She lets her see kind of this montage of women's emotions and she still chooses to go back to the real world. And, and so for me, when I'm thinking about the Barbie movie, I think it raises this question of what happens when we think we live in a perfect world and, and we don't. And then the answer that they give is kind of this accept brokenness, recognize that broken is beautiful, which I find fascinating because I think that's a step. But I actually think the gospel has a way to respond to that. Yeah, I was going to ask you, <laughs> of course, this is, you know, it, it's, it's, it has a viewpoint. And as we might expect from a Hollywood movie, it's not particularly a Christian viewpoint. Sure. But there are themes in which that Christians can highlight and note. 
So if you were going to sum it up, what, what would you say are the positive themes and perhaps what might be some of the negatives about the movie? I mean, the positive, I do think there is a place for like recognizing that there is a, a beauty to brokenness. There's a reality to brokenness. Um, and, I, and I don't say that meaning that we should sit there, mm-hmm. but I do think the recognition of my life isn't perfect. Uh, the world as I, as I know it isn't perfect. There are problems and I can still, I can still embrace the, the beauty of life in the midst of that, I think is a, is a great theme. Yeah, I ask what were the negatives. Maybe a better way of saying it, what might be some of the things where as Christians we want to take it the sure. next step? Yeah, and I, I think that's, that is the question. I actually walked out, I've, I've said this to many people, um, I walked out of that movie and thought, I'm really intrigued by where it went, but I also want to respond with like, how does the gospel respond to what just happened in Barbie? And I think there is a place for us to recognize we have this life that we can, especially in the West, we can, we can, we can delude ourselves into saying, I'm comfortable, my life is good, things are great. Now, I think that's maybe shifted a little bit in the last few years, but uh, that's been a predominant kind of worldview for people in the West. And to have the moment where we recognize things aren't okay, like what happens when I live a perfect life, what seems like a perfect life, I have everything I want, and I'm still at the end of the day wondering, you guys ever think about dying? But what Barbie doesn't answer or doesn't give is the answer to the question. So as Christians, we would say, yes, there's brokenness in the world. Um, Yes, the world is not perfect. Yes, there's something lacking. And yes, we can still live beautiful, amazing lives in the midst of that. But Christ also offers us a way forward and a way uh, and something to look forward to. Right. So we're, we're looking forward to the day when we are in a perfect world uh, because Christ is going to come back and he's going to set everything right. And he promises that in this life, if we will follow after him, we can have abundant life. That doesn't mean just in the future someday. Right. That actually changes the way we live our lives now. We live our lives now, and we can live in this broken world because of the hope of what's coming in the future. I think for a lot of people, one of the reasons they don't, they're not as attracted to the kingdom of God is that they see it simply as something sanitized rather than seeing it as something sacred and, and, and beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much uh, for um, talking about Ken and Barbie. Yeah, my pleasure. If you could edit your DNA, would you or should you? This used to be a question left to science fiction, but no longer. Genetic engineering is here. And here to discuss this topic with us today is Dr. Jeff Harden. Dr. Harden is professor in the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of Wisconsin. In addition to numerous scientific research articles relating to embryonic development, Harden is senior author of World of the Cell and co-edited a book called The Warfare Between Science and Religion, The Idea That Wouldn't Die. He also advises various campus ministry organizations. Dr. Harden, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Dr. Harden, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you come to faith in Christ, and how did you get interested in science in general? Well, I was not raised in a particularly religious home. My parents had kind of drifted from traditional Christianity when I was a little boy. And uh, so it was a classmate in middle school who invited me to a Southern Baptist youth revival meeting where I first heard the good news about Jesus. I went back for a second helping of a revival meeting. And at that point, it was very clear to me that I needed what only Jesus 
had to offer, which was uh, the solution to my sin problem. So mm-hmm. I turned my life over to Christ then, and um, uh, that's how I became a believer. And I had some ups and downs, like like many people do, especially uh, early in college. But thankfully, I my my life spiritually got on track at that time. I began walking with the Lord and really committed my life to Christ. And I understand that you work with worms. Uh, and we talked about that at, at various things recently. So how did you get in- interested in that world uh, of, of science and, and studying worms? Well, I'd always wanted to be a scientist. In fact, I wanted to be a physicist. Um, but I got to college and I realized, you know, I was sort of good in math, but not good enough to be a top shelf physicist. And so I, then I turned to biology uh, my my brother had suffered uh, bacterial meningitis, kind of devastating mm. injuries as a result of that. And um, so I thought I would, would be a doctor. But um, to make a long story short, although I was headed to an MD-PhD program and thought that that's where my life was pointing, I took a detour and went to theological seminary. Uh, while I was there and pursuing my Master of Divinity degree, I felt a strong call to go back into academic science. And I I uh, went to UC Berkeley for my PhD, and uh, I was in the biophysics program, and that covers a lot of different things. But I did one lab rotation in a lab that was studying embryos, and the first time I looked down the oculars of a microscope at a developing embryo, I was absolutely hooked. So at that point, I was studying animals called sea urchins. They're related to starfish, and they've been used for you know, I don't know, a couple of centuries to to study embryonic development. Uh, And that's what I did through my PhD and postdoctoral work. But then when I got to Wisconsin, I needed a a way to do genetic alterations on embryos so that you could understand how genes regulate what embryos are doing. And sea urchins are not good for that. Hmm. But these little worms called Cenorhabditis elegans are great for that. They're sort of like fruit flies. You can muck up genes and see what effect that has on the development of an embryo. They're very simple. So it's sort of the philosophy that you can learn a lot about a Mercedes by studying a Toyota. Um, if we're the Mercedes, little worms or, or fruit flies, it's the same idea, are, are the Toyota. Gotcha. And so you by studying these worms... And studying the the embryos and doing genetic engineering on those, you're learning lessons that would apply, in theory, to other organisms. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So uh, the National Institutes of Health funds our lab's research. And the reason for that is that we study proteins and these little worms that are very similar to proteins that, that humans have and that are important for human embryonic development. So um, we can learn the fundamental operating principles that underlie embryonic development using these worms. So we've kind of touched on this already, but where is the science currently on genetic engineering? I mean, it sounds like you basically do this on the worms right now. Where is the science uh, at this point? Well, uh, it's been possible to, quote, genetically engineer, unquote, uh, organisms for a long time. But in the past, uh, the easiest way to do that was to add in little bits of DNA. So you had everything that was there normally, but then you would add in an extra bit of DNA, maybe that would provide the information to make a glowing protein that you could follow with a powerful microscope. That's something that my lab has done over many, many years. But what's revolutionized the kind of work that I do and is raising all of the questions that your introduction raised is the ability to replace bits of DNA with edited bits of DNA. 
So we can swap in a changed bit of DNA in the normal place where uh, the original bit of DNA resides. And we can do that in a number of ways, but what's really made this easy is something called CRISPR-Cas9 technology. And CRISPR is an acronym, is that right? That's right. Clustered, regularly interspaced palindromic repeats. That's why why we call it CRISPR. That's why we call it CRISPR. (laughs) Yeah, those are little bits of DNA with specific features. They're they're, they're really part of a bacterial immune system. Bacteria get in, in, uh, they can be infected by viruses. And there are little bits of kind of memory DNA, if you will, that that the bacteria carry. So if they get infected again by that virus, they can fend off the attack by degrading the uh, viral uh, genetic material. So that's, that's what CRISPR stands for. Cas9 is an enzyme. So that's a protein that fosters a chemical reaction. And in this particular case, Cas9 can use the CRISPR system and little bits of a specific DNA or a cousin protein called RNA and target a specific piece of a gene and alter it. Hmm. And it turns out that it's really cheap. And, you know, if you're really smart and you de- devise ways to do this, then you got a Nobel Prize uh, for, for doing that. And, and for good reason, because it's really transformed how, how we do uh, genetic engineering. What are the positives to this technology? CRISPR and, and the other Cat9. What are the positives um, and how is this beneficial to some degree? Well, it's cheap. So it's really easy. Um, inexpensive compared to earlier technologies. Uh, it works on almost all organisms. Uh, if you can figure out a way to get all of the, the bits into the cells of an organism, then, then it works in almost all organisms. And it's very precise. Hmm. So uh, we really can engineer little bits of DNA. It's not perfect, but uh, those are, are some of the benefits. What are some potential dangers of this technology? I mean, I can think of a thousand dangers. I've watched enough sci-fi movies to know (laughs) that the potential for genetic engineering uh, has some negative repercussions. What are those in the real world? I mean, let's let's say sci-fi aside. In the real world, what are some potential dangers with this? Yeah, that's a good question. So CRISPR-Cas9 is really good at altering a specific target sequence of DNA. But it's not perfect. So sometimes there are what are called off-target effects. So you, 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 maybe you have successfully altered the little bit of DNA that you wanted to alter, but you might have altered some other bits of DNA far away from the site that you were originally intending to change. And those are called off-target effects. And you don't know whether you've done that unless you sequence all of the DNA in the cells that you're trying to alter. And most of the time, people don't do that. So off-target effects are, are kind of a practical problem. So if you're going to alter an organism, you might introduce unintended side effects due to these off-target mm. effects. So that's kind of a technical issue. And that could be substantial because if you were altering some organism that you were going to uh, let loose in the world, you know, there's, there's a, a potential, a small potential perhaps, that the law of unintended consequences could wreak havoc with, with what you're trying to do. Now, if you're thinking about using CRISPR-Cas9 technology to alter the DNA of human cells, off-target effects become much more important because off-target effects can, can, mutations can lead to things like cancer or if you were ever thinking about altering the DNA that could be passed on 
through sperm and egg to the next generation, all of those edits, those changes are going to be passed on. So there are generational dangers in, in uh, doing these kinds of experiments uh, due to those issues. Now, I think by danger, you were meaning, because you mentioned sci-fi, <laughs> you know, the diabolical scientist who's sure. trying to do something maybe doesn't have the, the moral compunction that, that some of us uh, would have with thinking about altering um, the human genome, the human genetic constitution. And there is that danger. So there are very famous experiments that were done in China, for example, that, that the scientific community has, has pretty roundly condemned in which uh, genome editing using this kind of CRISPR-Cas9 technology was applied to human embryos that were produced by in vitro fertilization. And then those human embryos were implanted. Um, they were brought to term and, and baby girls were the result with edits. Well, there were a lot of questions about those experiments about whether they were ethically justifiable. I think most people think they weren't. But in addition, we, we just, the, the safety of this procedure, if you were to ever think about doing that, and I think people should have grave reservations about that, we're just not at a point with the technology where we're confident that we're doing what we think we're doing 100% of the time. Now, the other question I think is, all right, it's one thing to engineer little worms so that they make glowing proteins and I can watch them in a microscope in my lab. It's a very different thing to think about altering the genetic constitution of the human species. And so the question is, do we have the wisdom to do that? Should we ever do that? And if we're going to do that, how should we do it? I think most people feel that there are certain situations for which CRISPR-Cas9 could be great as a medical treatment, and that involves uh, editing diseased cells that are called somatic cells. So the cells of your body that don't make the cells that will make eggs and sperm. So altering those cells in very specific cases, I think most people feel is a good uh, stewarding of genetic technology. So a good example of this are diseases that result in mutations in hemoglobin particular sickle cell disease that you may have heard of. This results from a mutated form of one of the subunits of the protein hemoglobin, the oxygen-carrying protein in red blood cells. It causes them to be misshapen. We know what the mutation is. Hmm. We know what the mutation is that most patients have. And so if you could devise a way to genetically alter cells and allow them to reproduce to make lots of blood cells, then you could cure those patients. And clinical trials are underway to do that. So in that case, we've made a beneficial edit to restore a normal form of the gene that provides the information to make the hemoglobin protein. And this restores a normal shape to those red blood cells. And this, compared to other kinds of treatments for sickle cell disease, is incredible. Hmm. The patients show dramatic improvement, and it's remarkable. So I think most people would say, Oh, that's a that's a good use of yeah, of yeah. These because it's restoring of, it back to the norm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It gets trickier even with somatic cells when we talk about enhancing, yeah, so going yeah. beyond the norm. Now, you know, it's a little challenging to say, well, what exactly is normal? So, just setting that question aside, I think we all have an intuitive sense for what's basically normal and what would constitute dramatic enhancement. And so, I think a lot of people are asking. Is that an appropriate use 
of CRISPR-Cas9 technology? Uh, I would say not. I would say that repairing a disease state is something that CRISPR-Cas9, is, is, that's a great use for that technology uh, and a good stewarding of our ability to be stewards of our, our own bodies. But, but enhancement really is, is taking us away from, from that kind of an idea. So I have a lot of questions about any proposed enhancement in that way. There might be a few that we would all say, you know, that's, that's pretty good. I'm, I'm very nearsighted. So, if, you know, if we, could, if we could cure nearsightedness, you know, maybe so. Um, but, you know, there are cosmetic uses that people would propose that I have a lot of questions about that feel maybe not appropriate. So, um, so even with somatic cell engineering, I, I think the, the, the uses that, that people have proposed that have broad support are these ones that, that cure disease states. One of, the, one of the other areas that's really uh, on vogue right now is to engineer our own immune cells a group of cells called T cells, so that they're very good at recognizing cancer cells in our own bodies, so mm-hmm. that your own immune system could be engineered to be more efficient at killing off cancer cells. And uh, that so-called CAR T therapy is in clinical trials in a number of circumstances. So there's some really exciting uses of the technology. So what I hear is there are very promising opportunities for medicinal uses almost. Maybe that's not the appropriate word, but where we can use these to, to, to treat diseases, treat cancer, and those kinds of things. The the fuzziness, and for obvious reason, comes when we use it more for uh, other other reasons, other motivations. I mean, I just think about our the, the radical individualism of our world already and how people want to make their bodies fit what they think they should be. You know, as a pastor, I think through that and the long the, the, the potential to go down that road with this technology could lead to some places we don't want to go. I would agree with that, uh, especially when we talk about the other kind of potential genetic engineering using genome editing, and that's editing our germline. So, so far I've been talking about cells of the body, but if we engineer eggs and sperm, those genetic changes are passed on to the next generation. Yeah. Um, or the way that those little girls in China that I mentioned were genome edited was you, you can inject the CRISPR-Cas9 mix into early embryos, in, into a fertilized egg, and that will uh, get transmitted to all of the cells of the body, and then including the eggs and sperm. So when those little girls grow up, their eggs will carry the edit that was introduced in when they were embryos. So that introduces all kinds of additional moral complexities to the situation. Are we wise enough to shepherd our own genetic destiny. I think we've shown as a species, and I think the Bible speaks very powerfully to this in the first 11 chapters of Genesis in particular, that we are sinful and we lack wisdom and that we need to seek wisdom that really only comes from being in right relationship to God and seeking wisdom from the scriptures. And so I I question whether we as a species really have the wisdom to to edit in in a large-scale way our, our own genomes. Um, and you're right, this coupled with our tendency in our, our 21st century, especially Western culture, towards hyper-individualism means that a lot of the discussions about designer genetic engineering and just that phrase yeah. says a lot about 
who we are as a society and whether uh, we are really capable of using these technologies well. And I, I think that's where Christian perspectives are unique. We as Christians have a very tempered view of human beings. We are simultaneously created in the image of God, but because of our sinful condition, we have a healthy dose of reality about the, the potential for harm that humans yeah. can inflict. Yeah. seems like we're just scratching the surface of the, this conversation, the ethical concerns of this conversation. I would recommend to our uh, listeners on our website, cfc.sebts.edu, we have a couple of lectures that Dr. Harden gave here at Southeastern Seminary on this topic. And also, I think there is a, some value of human life conversations as well that this, this whole conversation connects with. And we've got some resources there on our website of Dr. Harden sharing more about this in depth. Dr. Harden, how is this conversation connected to the topic of formation? Well, I, clearly our genes influence who we are as individual people. There's no question of that. Lots of good evidence for that. On the other hand, I worry when we think that simply fixing our genes will lead us to be fully formed humans before God. There's a lot more that goes into human formation than simply thinking that we are the genetic equivalents of auto mechanics popping the hood on our genomes to tweak a few things here, tweak a few things there. On the other hand, genetics impacts us. We all know that for good or for ill. I have a very poor endowment for being an NBA basketball player. No question of that. And, I, you know, there are limitations that our genomes impose upon us. And I think the Bible is very clear that each individual human, no matter what our genetic mix, is capable of engaging in a loving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And so that's not to say that we shouldn't be good stewards of our genomes. But if we think that our, our genomes is our only hope, we're mistaken. And I think the Bible has a lot to say about the fact that, no, what uh, God has done for us in Jesus Christ, that's the source of our real hope. Mm, that's a good word. Dr. Harden, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about your work in this regard. How can people follow you and follow your work? Well, we talked about the little worms I work on. My lab's website is https worms.zoology.wisc.edu. And if you want to find out about our research, you can go there. And that's maybe one of the best ways to find out about me. Learn about the worms. And the more we've talked about the worms, I'm, the more impressed I am with, with the work y'all do. And thank you for your faithfulness and your vocation. Dr. Harden, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been nice to be here. Now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where guests share what they're reading right now. Uh, we talked to Dr. Dobb earlier in the episode about Barbie and Ken. So, Dr. Dobb, what's on your bookshelf right now? Well, I am actually preparing. Here's my shameless plug. I'm actually preparing to teach anthropology next semester here on campus, which I think will be a lot of fun. Uh, looking at anthropology from a Christian standpoint and how it can relate to uh, the mission of God. And so I've been revisiting an old favorite of mine called The Gospel in Human Context by Paul Hebert. 
Paul Hebert is a Christian anthropologist slash missiologist who really did, I think, a phenomenal job of navigating between the worlds of anthropology and missions um, in a way that kept the, the, the scripture central, but also recognized we need to understand the humans we're talking to. And so the gospel in human context really is about that. Uh, It gives you a history of our understanding of anthropology, especially from a missions point of view, and how uh, anthropology actually forms or shapes the way that we think about people who are different than us, which I think is one of the, like, it's worth the price of admission is is that particular section. Um, And then he gives a way forward of how do we how do we be cultural mediators as as missionaries who are going into other cultures. Paul Hebert is also one of my favorite authors. That's a, that is a great recommendation. Thank you, Dr. Dobb, and thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a five-star rating and a brief review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. <music>